The history of Rocky Horror is a history of cinema. For everything you like about Rocky Horror, there was at least one film that inspired it. And we're going to review them all on... Episode Zero! And welcome back to Episode Zero, the Rocky Horror Picture Show podcast, where we don't really talk about the Rocky Horror Picture Show. My name is William Bibiani. I'm a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a critic. I don't have a cute nickname. And, and why did you say it so scoldingly? I don't know. I just tried to mix we it up. We don't talk about the Rocky Horror Picture Show here. I, 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 again, you say the same thing over mm. and over again. After a while, you start just, like try to have fun with it and every once in a while you just say it in such a weird way everyone's like what the hell is wrong with you and i'm like i don't know i've done like dozens of these and hundreds of the other ones and i like to i like to have fun <laughs> i'm a cool guy what uh what are we talking about this week William? okay well every week on episode zero we talk about the prehistory of a pop culture phenomenon uh stuff like star wars didn't come from out of nowhere there was a ton of media that uh, uh, presaged it and directly influenced it. And uh, that's totally true for the Rocky Horror Picture Show, the midnight movie phenomenon that is still going strong. And uh, yeah, it is directly influenced by a lot of movies, mostly sci-fi horror, but others as well. And today we're talking about one of the many songs that were name-checked mm -hmm. in the opening number from Rocky Horror, a uh, science fiction double feature, uh, includes references to a ton of old school, mostly B movie, sci fi, and horror flicks. Yeah. And today we're going to talk about one that I had actually never seen. Uh, and um, I think I thought I had because it's got one of those generic titles. <laughs> like, uh, you know. Well, it's it's reference. The title itself is referenced so much. Yeah. And it came out uh, at in in a very specific era in American science fiction history. Where there were a lot of it, stuff that sounded like it. Yeah. Like, well, it conquered the world. It, it conquered it, the, the world. the terror from it, beyond space. Well, just, uh, it came from outer space. Invasion of the saucer men. The things that uh, were unique at the time, mm -hmm. but came Zeitgeisty. to. Came to represent the most generic elements of the genre. At least o over in, the 1950s. In, in the years that uh, that came after it, and uh, so yeah, and we'll, let's, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. Well, maybe. let's talk about uh, let's well, let's get right to it then. Let's talk about um, it came from outer space. Yes, it came from outer space to fill the world with terror, to bring you unforgettable suspense. <laughs> what was it? Where did it come from? Who were the all-powerful creatures it brought from outer space? And what did they want on Earth? You can learn the amazing answer only when you see the most thrilling picture in years. It came from outer space. In the astonishing realism of three dimension, with objects coming right out of the screen, so real they almost touch you. There's no question mark in the title. I love it in trailers. We were just having a conversation about this before the podcast. Yeah. I love it in trailers where they say something like, Yes! It came from outer space, as though we were incredulous at the title. Mm. Like, what? Surely not. No. 
Um, one of my favorite openings, and I actually haven't seen the movie in a while, so I hope I'm remembering this correctly, is from the movie I Walked with a Zombie. Mm. And if memory serves, the opening line of dialogue is, Yes, I walked with a zombie. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I guess that wraps that up. <laughs> Confirm. Well, it's not called Who Walked with a Zombie. Well, well, it's I Walked with a Zombie. We want to hear that story. If yeah. it's Who Walked with a Zombie and the first line was, I did. Yeah. It's like, okay, well, I'm going home now. Yeah, I know the I know the answer to that question. It would be like a, who framed Roger Rabbit, and it was like that guy. I'm like, oh, cool. It was Judge Doom. He framed oh, okay. Roger Rabbit. Yeah, spoilers, but yeah, <laughs> he's the only bad guy in the movie. Yeah, it's, it's who else guy. could it be? It's, it's a kids movie. It's, it's fun. It's not a mystery. <laughs> it's not a great mystery, but it's fun. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, uh, it came from outer space. Okay. Is a sci-fi film. Damn it. Came out in 1953 from director Jack Arnold, who also did uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon and The Incredible Shrinking Man. So this guy is uh, responsible for three very notable science yeah. fiction classics. Yeah, uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon is typically considered like the last great universal monster movie, mm-hmm. even though the majority of the universal monsters uh, came out between like 1931 and 1941. At least that's when they were introduced. Um, Creature was like the 50s. Mm. And... He's just such a cool monster. Everyone grandfathered him in. It's like, oh yeah, he's one of the originals, right? Yeah, you'll, you'll, you'll watch it back to back with Dracula. Dracula came out in thirty one. Yeah, and Creature from the Black Lagoon didn't come out till fifty four. So yeah. yeah, there was this big gap. Um, uh, but, uh, by, but by the time Creature from the Black Lagoon had come out, in fact, uh, science fiction had changed a lot. Monster movies had changed a lot. Yeah. So it's kind of unusual that the Creature from the Black Lagoon is considered on par with a character like Dracula. Dracula mm-hmm. comes from literature and yeah. there's something very operatic about Dracula. I know he wears capes and lives in haunted yeah. castles. A lot of over the top you know, melodrama, and full Dracula, moons yeah. and lightning. And, uh, creature from the black lagoon is about, um, a fish man. It's about a fish man who lives in this unexplored place. And it's about how people are sort of encroaching a little too far. That is to yeah. say colonialists are yeah. encroaching a little bit or too far. Or if you far. want to look at it from an environmentalist perspective, here yeah, we or, are messing with yeah, the Amazon, that kind of thing. Yeah, and um, Wrecking too much of the jungle. Yeah, the Creature from Black is a very modern type monster. Yeah. And the other universal horror monsters were very uh, classical. Mm. Um, the emphasis was more on their character. Whereas mm. the creature, other than he's the only one of his kind. And as a result, when he sees... A woman, it's like the closest thing he can recognize. Mm-hmm. So that explains his interest. But other than that, he doesn't have a personality. Yeah. He's a fish. And I I really like that movie a lot. But for me, the absolute classic that Jack Arnold did was uh, The Incredible Shrinking Man yeah. from 1957, which is, as far as I'm concerned, upper echelon top 20 sci-fi films ever made. Oh, for sure. Maybe even the top 10. I'm just, I haven't done my research. I haven't like listed them all out yet, but like, it's a great pulpy, simple concept. Guy is exposed to radioactive stuff. Mm. Guy starts to shrink and you've got all the great shrinking visual effects you could possibly want from that. You got him fighting a spider with like a nail and like all that stuff is awesome. But it's also by the end, genuinely profound. Yeah, it it actually gets like super philosophical. Not even at the end, like, no, he, like he actually starts to con- contemplate these things. No, like it, they earn it. Like, uh, and they're, they're just tacking on. Yeah, and indeed, uh, that kind of philosophical uh, poetry, if you will, it uh, used to be kind of hand in glove with science fiction. If you're familiar with a lot of like pulp stories and weird tales that were being published uh, in the decades previous. Yeah a lot of really ambitious science fiction writers were putting out these novels. They, they sold for very cheap and uh, a lot of them were quite bad, yeah. but uh, uh, you know, occasionally you'd have like 
this is where people like H.P. Lovecraft became popular. Like his stories mm-hmm. started to leak into these pulp novels. And uh, this idea that you can look out at the, the world and start to speculate about the future, speculate about life on other planets and instantly get really philosophical used to be kind of the baseline reading for a lot of yeah. The idea is that as we approach Mm. and encounter the unknown, we're not just supposed to shoot it. Yeah. We're supposed to actually think about it and go, wow, our place in the universe is not what we thought it was. And And, that's incredible. And indeed, uh, it came from outer space features a lot of dialogue where people are just sort of standing. They shot out at Joshua tree. It's a cheap ass movie. Yeah. We don't see the, well, alien, it, it, yeah. the visual effects are actually pretty expensive. It wasn't mm. cheap ass, but they didn't spend money on it, the location. It has, it, yeah, it has the same kind of bland locations you'd see in an Ed Wood movie. Uh, and they go out and there's people just sort of standing on the edge of the desert, looking out and saying so many ways the desert could kill you. The, <laughs> it's like, Oh, it's a dead place. There's a lot of life out there. And there's, and so many opportunities for like, and there, you know, what, what is happening out in the desert? Are we alone? Like all these kind of little moments of deep contemplation. And, uh, the main character is the most thoughtful character. Luckily they don't mm. like sort of go into a cabin and receive some, uh, some thoughtful sage advice from an old seer and then go and commit the act of action. Yeah. The main uh, character is the thoughtful yeah, one. The main character is named John Putnam. He's played by Richard Carlson, who also starred in The Creature from the Black Lagoon. He also starred in one of my favorite um, unsung movies of the era, The Maze. Did you ever see The Maze? Oh, I never saw The Maze. The Maze was directed by the incredible mm. William Cameron Menzies, who has practically invented modern production design as we know it. Um, and uh, it was credited for a lot of like the visual effects in uh, Gone with the Wind. He's yeah. a really influential figure. Um and uh, he also directed some really kooky, weird sci-fi films. Mm. Uh, he directed the original Invaders from Mars, which actually has a lot of the same DNA mm. yeah. uh, as it came from outer space because it's about aliens crash landing and paranoia and taking over the town. And, oh, no, our Americano, what, what will happen? Um, but I think that one's got a little bit more personality than this as much as I like this movie. Um, but he also did this really weird Lovecraftian film called The Maze, uh, which stars Richard Carlson as a guy who's just going about his business. Everything's cool. He's about to get married. Everything's going pretty good in his life. And then he inherits a castle from uh-huh. like his old Scottish part of the family. Mm. And he goes to the castle and then he vanishes. And his fiance comes looking for him and says, hey, what happened and why do you look so sick? And he is like, you must never come to the castle again. <laughs> and she's trying to investigate what happened to him mm. that made him retreat and what is the mystery of the giant hedge maze that surrounds this castle i will not tell you the big reveal suffice it to say that i'm pretty good at guessing twist endings and i had no fucking idea (laughs) it totally i'm not sure it works Uh but it sure is different Hmm. um so it's a neat little spooky movie with some campy elements and uh, much like it it came from outer space it's also early 3d yeah, and there's a lot of really interesting 3D effects in this. A lot of them are the kind of stuff we see now, you know, uh, uh, helicopter shots over mountains, like ooh scale. Um, but there's also some really interesting visual effects components to this movie, and I think whenever the visual, eff- this is one of those rare movies where I'm like, you know, you see a movie sometimes and the movie sucks, but the, at least the visual effects are good. Here the movies are the movie's good, but the visual effects are so novel. In some regards, there's this amazing shot where um, Richard Carlson and Barbara Rush, who play his, who plays his girlfriend, um, 
they're in the desert and they're investigating this these mysterious alien goings on. And the plot's really simple. Uh, a giant meteor crash lands into uh, the desert, but it turns out it's actually a giant spaceship. But no one believes our hero, John Putnam, because he's the only person who saw that it was a spaceship before there was a big cave-in. Mm. And so now he's telling everyone, I think there are aliens here. And they're like, nah. But everyone keeps getting kidnapped by aliens. Uh, there's this amazing bit where someone's been attacked by the aliens. And uh, we've got this incredible, like, POV shot where it's though we're inside the eye of the alien looking out through the lens. And there's, like, this mm. weird kind of watery distortion as though we're looking through... Uh, you know the, the the alien single eyeball yeah, yeah really neat um and then there's a bit of a mist on the side of the screen and then the mist coalesces into a translucent arm that like like a video game like you would have like coming out of the screen and it reaches out and it touches and it touches barbara rush and he turns around and he screams at you and i'm like i had to rewind it I, that was gorgeous that was that was creepy and ethereal and really magical. Like I, I wasn't also, entirely sure they did it at first. It, it's good drama. It's also a good budgetary thing mm-hmm. where uh, you can show uh, sort of a, a st- the reaction to the monster, a strange way of seeing the monster without actually having a monster on screen. Yeah. Um, there's a, a general bit <clears throat> of wisdom that circulates through uh, genre filmmaking that the less you see the monster, the better, mm-hmm. or the more you hold it off. Yeah. Thanks to modern CGI, they can show the monster right away and they're just going to do it. Frequently. Uh, you know, even in like early Godzilla movies, they usually waited like 20 or 30 minutes before a monster would show I, up. I think the secret to getting away with this mm. is... Because um, you, you don't want the monster to be up so much that they lose their, their mystery mm. or their magic or their horror. You don't want to just become familiar with them like, oh, hey, it's Jason. Mm. Like, you, that, that's not great. But what you want to do is you want to hold off, you want to tease... You want to gradually reveal a little bit more over time. And then once we see the dang thing, we want to spend a little time with it. Yeah. And I think a movie like Predator gets this really right. Yeah. Like the last act, you're just seeing the Predator and the Predator looks cool. Alien does the same thing where Mm. they hold off on showing like the full sized alien for so long. But towards the end, like in that last bit where Ripley is like on the the, um, Mm. escape pod, um, you just get a really long look Mm. at it. And you're just like, yeah, I was right to be scared of that thing. That thing's scary as fuck. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. That's great. Um, yeah, it's really upsetting when they finally show the monster and it looks silly. Yeah. I, I saw a, a really low-budget uh, horror film called Hypothermia once. Um, and it, it was about um, a cre- characters who were going ice fishing and a creature was coming up through the ice and dragging them back down into the hole. And we didn't get to see it. We just saw, like, people, like, finger... Fingernail marks scraping in the snow as they were dragged underneath. And oh, I remember you telling about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it, it was it wasn't directed, but it was produced by Fassenden. It was one of those uh, one of Larry Fassenden's sort of projects. Yeah. And by the time we saw the monster, like it, it had like it was like a guy in a, a head to toe wetsuit, it was all black, and it had these big ridiculous like glued on shark eyes oh. and a big like flappy shark mouth and a little fin on top of his oh, head. Oh, that's not it, good. Like, You're shark, best off not showing that. Shark Boy from Shark Boy and Lava Girl looked better. Oh, that's too bad. Yeah. The one I think of most is, um, we just referenced it, uh, It Conquered the World, which is a Roger Corman movie. Yeah. Uh, starring Lee Van Cleef and uh, Beverly Garland and, um, was it Richard Graves? Wait, who was in that? Peter Graves. Peter Graves, thank you. Um, and it's about uh, the uh, Lee Van Cleef is a scientist who makes contact with aliens on Venus, hmm. and uh, because people scientists on Earth do not believe his crackpot theories, 
Mm. Uh, he decides to align himself with the aliens from Venus and help them take over the world. It conquered the world. Not just a title, but a spoiler. Um, but uh, we don't see... We see like little bat creatures like fly around and like attach themselves to people's neck and that's how uh-huh. they control their minds. And they look a little goofy, but that's not the weirdest thing we've ever seen. So you can kind of forgive it. Mm. When you finally see the Venusian, it's the stupidest looking thing. <laughs> they're, they're being invaded by a giant Vlasic pickle. <laughs> and, and Vlasic pickle wishes it looked this, mm. this ridiculous. Like then they could sell it and like, but like it looks, I don't know what the fuck it looks like. Honestly, it looks like, like the stock from a pumpkin. But like with <laughs> with like little little beads on it for it, eyes, but it, it's giant. Like I don't know. It, it looks like a like a bomb pop with with horns and a little stupid face down near the ground, and then these two weird tentacle arms. Yeah, it's just awful. Frank Zapper literally wrote a song about it called "Cheapness." Okay, <laughs> it's a really bad month, so it's a really important. Mm. And, and it conquered. Sorry, uh, it came from outer space. Um, pulls the gag. Where they spend most of the time like inhabiting people bodies so that they can roam about amongst us. Mm. But whenever we actually get a look at it, it looks really cool. Like it's yeah. this like really weird, clearly biological organism. It's got like stray wisps of hair. Like they weren't trying to make it look sexy or even frightening. They were just trying to make it look weird. And it turns out, according to research I've done, they came up with two designs for the creatures. Uh-huh. And it came from outer space. One of which they used for it came from outer space. The other they used for this island Earth and the Meluna <laughs> oh, mutant. Oh, it's the mutant. Okay, yeah, and like those are both two of the great alien designs. That's true. Although um, it was a wise choice. Uh, the cool thing about the aliens in it came from outer space is they look really alien. Yeah. And in fact, that's the the biggest plot point in the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, it comes straight from Childhood's End, the Arthur C. Clarke novel as well. Um, the fact that alien creatures look so alien to us that we are unable to uh, get past our prejudices to accept them. Yeah. When we look uh, the, up, human beings like to project. Uh, we like to see our face in things that just have like two dots on a line. Mm. When we see animals that have like cute faces that remind us of us, like cats... We think to themselves, oh, they think they're people. They're yeah. giving human... They're not. They're, Sorry, they're, Luca. They're, they're animals. It's they're fine. An, yeah. They're animals and they have personalities, but they don't, they don't operate the way that we do. And like the further removed from something that looks kind of like us it is, the less we project humanity onto it. Mm. So it's hard to like project humanity onto a paramecium. Yeah. It's mm. just... It, it doesn't... It's not the first thing that occurs so, uh, to us. So if an alien looked completely mm. different from us, the alien's surmise quite rightly, that a lot of human beings wouldn't be very open-armed. Yeah, the um, the plot of Childhood's End is uh, some aliens arrive at Earth and they say, we're going to help, we're going to usher you into the next stage of human evolution. We're going to, you're just going to be a better species. You're going to become a different species. Mm-hmm. And uh, and everybody says, I don't know about this. Why don't you show yourselves? No, no, we'll, we'll just help you by remote. Uh, we'll just, you hear our voices now. And by the time they land and we get to see them like years down the line, they look like demons. They're like mm-hmm. these red-skinned, bat-winged creatures with horns. Yeah. And they say, see? <laughs> yeah. If we if we appeared out of the sky and said, hey, look at us, we're going to help you, you would have said, no, you're the devil. Yeah. Good. We, we've read your books. <laughs> mm-hmm. So this idea that we are we're too prejudiced to accept alien creatures was kind of a running theme through... Yeah. A lot of science fiction as the, well. The cool thing about it came from outer space uh, from a plot perspective. And again, the plot's really simple. 
hmm. is uh, initially it's all about uh, will Richard Carlson's character be able to convince the town that he's right and aliens have landed. He's not specifically fear mongering. He's not saying they're all going to kill us. Hmm. He just knows that they're here. Yeah. And he wants people to know. There's this amusing bit at the beginning where they're talking about he's he and Barbara Rush are talking about their plans of the future and will they be able to get married on his reporter's salary and he's so happy he sold one story and he's like yeah I sold one story it's only enough to finish the outside of the house and I'm like what the fuck <laughs> what kind of salaries are you getting the majority of the oh my god <laughs> I couldn't I could barely pay my gas bill with like what most articles pay mm. nowadays like it's ridiculous um so that that was just hilarious but um but yeah he's just trying to he's he's looking for the truth he's interested and everyone else around him just doesn't believe him. Yeah. And when they do start to believe him, when things are start strange start happening, people do start disappearing and other people are noticing, that's when the sheriff just goes, well, time to start killing. Yeah. And he picks up his gun. He has an interesting speech, which feels very much like a modern speech. Like, this is not the kind of speech you would normally hear in, like... Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's what I call the do you know did you know speech, where the screenwriter looked up one interesting factoid and built a whole monologue around it, <laughs> and uh, this is very common today, not so much in the fifties. And it's just like yeah, I read an article once that said in the when ninety most murders happen at ninety two degrees, mm. lower than ninety two degrees it's just too cold and you can't be bothered. More than ninety two degrees we're just too hot and you can't be bothered. But ninety two that's a killing temperature. <laughs> it's such a it's a great line. Mm. But it reminds us that, like, this this movie has an attitude. Mm. And the attitude is that the social structures that we have and that the uh, uh, the police that we rely on ostensibly for our safety, they're really flawed humans. Mm. And well, they're, they're they're, f- we, we shouldn't rely on them for things like first contact with an alien species. And, and they're often presented, uh, not just in this film, but in other films like it, as as being the true representatives of humanity. Mm-hmm. Uh, look, at its yeah, worst, but yeah, yeah go, go even all, all the way up to something like Arrival, where mm-hmm. um, we are concerned with how we're talking to these alien creatures, because it's actually the military who are representing the bulk of the action that's going to be taken. Yeah, and we're starting to look at that now, even even like a smaller level, like you know the uh, we're looking at police reform right now, really yeah. really seriously in this country, and we should be doing more. Um, but one of the things that we're looking at when we talk about things like defunding the police, what we're not meaning is that there should be no police ever. Mm. What we're saying is that maybe we shouldn't be giving all the money to like, you know, Me- all- mental health legislation. Yeah, exactly. That, maybe, legislation. maybe the police yeah. shouldn't be involved in, in, uh, uh, helping people with mental health issues. Mm. Maybe, you know, it's telling people like, listen, if you ever feel threatened in the slightest, you should shoot to kill, which is actually something a lot of police are basically trained to do because that's they're told that that's okay. To do, yeah, yeah they're, they're told that that's okay, and there's a lot of laws that protect the police to do that. Um, but uh, maybe that's not a good mentality to go into when you're dealing with someone who is going through a mental health issue, mm. and they need you know understanding and support, and not to be killed. So we're looking more closely at what we expect the police to do. And when, again, when you look at these sci-fi movies in the fifties, and you see you know um, the day the Earth stood still. And the military immediately show up to surround the flying saucer. Mm. And one guy just immediately goes, bang! And the alien goes, well, that was a gift for your president. 
And I forget what it was. It was like it, a, it was it was a communication device. Yeah, it was going to help you communicate with the stars and learn everything about all cultures and gain a utopian society. But well, I only brought one, so fuck it. That's on you, Private Reginald or whatever the hell his name is. And it's just sort of just like, yeah, maybe that guy shouldn't have been at the front line of that. Hmm. And we see that here, where the 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 town is increasingly getting worked up into a mob. Hmm. And here we have people who are. I mean, they're concerned. Yeah. The aliens are are doing something strange and they're not really explaining themselves very well for a long time because people are going missing or people seem to be controlled mm. by an alien force. And when John Putnam finally is able to talk to an alien, the alien says very simply, uh, we're not here for you. Mm. We're not here to conquer the planet. We don't even care about your planet. This was like... This is like getting a flat tire in a small town on the on Route 66. We weren't going here. Yeah, we they, were passing by and we had to stop. And we have to fix our ship. And unfortunately, <clears throat> we can't just walk around the way we are because you, we'd scare the shit out of you. So we've had to use some weird measures in order to infiltrate your society, get some supplies. We'll be out of here tonight if you can just keep your shit together <laughs> and we won't bother you again. But of course... Humanity won't let that happen because we're paranoid as hell. Yeah, yeah. Um, and this this was the time for it, wasn't it? Yeah. Paranoia, uh, body snatcher stuff. A lot of fear. Uh, body snatchers is real, most commonly seen as an allegory about uh, American fears of communism, mm-hmm. uh, about how uh, the this post war idyllic nineteen fifties perfectness that was being sold in media yeah. is going to be interrupted by interlopers and. Not interlopers who look different from us, but pe- just the idea of communism, and that's yeah. the thing that's going to mutate the populace. It's so weird. We think that yeah. like, oh, if you if you if you come into contact with this pamphlet, you'll be tainted forever, yeah. and you'll spread the disease of yeah. communism to everyone you meet. Yeah. And it's like, no, we don't have Twitter yet. We don't. <laughs> we don't have Reddit. Like, four <laughs> chan isn't a thing. That's yet. that's a joke, but you know, it's not. It's, it's absurd, basically. Oh. Um, uh, but, also, uh, you also it's America. You're legally allowed to be a communist if you want. You're allowed to and, think that would be a good idea. Uh, but that sort of paranoia, this fear of the other, was a big uh, running theme throughout yeah. a lot of uh, genre films. A lot, just a lot of films in general of the um, 1950s. There was a lot of panic. There was a lot of fear. It was the Cold War, so we're constantly worried about mm. you know whether or not we're going to get bombed into oblivion or bomb yeah. someone else into oblivion or everyone gets bombed into oblivion. Uh, these ongoing uh, uh, talks of uh, nuclear fallout are leading mm. to all of these stories about mutants and uh, giant ants yeah, and shit. Yeah, and like fear of, of, of nuclear yeah. radiation was a big yeah, part of this as well. Yeah, we're starting to see a lot of horror revolving around scientific progress, fears of scientific progress, and our increasing xenophobia as America becomes more of a global superpower. Mm. And yeah, that's, that's the movie. It's, it's all right here. <laughs> but this but this movie like a lot of movies kind of like kind of get a little little waffly with it it's like okay yeah so this is a metaphor for why like paranoia is bad and like we're we're getting like too worked up about all this nuclear proliferation but also isn't it exciting when we literalize it we're gonna do this over and over again until this becomes your reality <laughs> and it's like <clears throat> maybe well, that's irresponsible i don't know uh, you can tell which film, like what side the films come down on, though, depending on who the main character is. And mm. uh, as with uh, The Day the Earth Stood Still, mm. uh, 
the main character is the one who's the most scientifically curious. He's the one who's the most open-minded. He's the least rash of the characters, and he is a man of inaction. He's a man of thought. Yeah. And these films are pushing this narrative that it's actually the thinkers and the open-minded people who have the right idea and the the violence mongers who are in the wrong. Mm-hmm. And that's something I appreciate. Yeah, and even and it's a tragedy even mm. like towards the end when the aliens feel the need to resort to violence because they just want to get mm. out of here safely. They're trying yeah, to protect okay. themselves too. Um, there's actually like a fight between uh, our hero and an alien who has taken the form of his girlfriend. Mm. And he's got a gun and he will, he will use it and he feels guilty about it afterwards to his credit. And then she's got a, this awesome laser beam that like carves <laughs> yeah, stuff it's, into it's a, a re- wall. It's, it's a, a really cool effect. Yeah. Uh, where they an- they animate the laser beam, but they've uh, come up with this effect where, uh, la- yeah, like a strip of rock falls out as he ducks. And yeah. it looks like the laser beam is slicing into the rock. It's actually really convincing. Mm. Like, mm. I, I got to say this. Like, this movie, I feel like by modern standards, this movie might be considered a little tame and that it's actually about you're right it's about thoughtfulness it's about avoiding conflict mm-hmm. rather than throwing yourselves into it the visual effects are good like kind of just across the board there's some really interesting uh uh really interesting cinematography like the way that they keep like a lot of the aliens in shadow even when it's like bright daylight it's really creepy there's this great bit where barbara rush like is driving down the highway and it looks like she's about to hit one of these guys that we know has already been like taken uh-huh. over by an alien or replaced by an alien. And it's it's clearly like a rear screen projection. Yeah. You know, because we're not actually going to run that guy over. But I don't know if it was intentional or not. I wouldn't be surprised if it was. As she gets close to him, he, the actually the perspective warps and he looks way too tall. <laughs> like not a lot. He's like he goes he's clearly like 6 feet, uh-huh. but he looks like 8. Huh. And it's a little subtle thing, but it's really unnerving. <laughs> and it just reminds you of just how, again, alien hmm. these people are and how, like, the rules don't seem to apply to them. And, like, when they reach out and grab someone, they just become covered in mist. And you don't know what that is. Are they mist? Are they breathing out mist? Yeah, it's uh, not really explained because we don't have the tools necessary to even understand them. Hmm. Uh, and they're also body snatchers. Well, they're not body snatchers. They're but snatching they, people's bodies, but they're, they're fine. Uh, well, they're shapeshifters. They yeah. like take people away and then take their place. Yeah, there's this great bit where yeah, that's, um, that's where the paranoia comes in. You're, you're the people you know are being replaced. There's this great bit where Richard Carlson, towards the end, uh, meets uh, uh, one of the aliens has taken his form oh. and is acting opposite himself via editing and a little bit of split screen, not a lot. Mm. Um, and I actually gotta tell you. I've never been like super impressed by Richard Carlson as an actor. I think he's fine. Like I got no harsh words against him, but I actually think he's really good in this movie. Like I mm. think he's like, un- I think he's, and I think just that one bit where he got to play opposite himself and he got to have all of this weird authority of like the cosmos uh-huh. and sell it. And while being opposite himself, being this kind of meek and callow mm. and uh, just, just this uh, nerdy type. I was like, Dude has some range, actually. Like, I really, I owe him a bit of an apology. I think he's a better actor than I ever gave him credit for. Mm. Um, I really like him in this film. I think he's uh, one of those actors who most people don't know. Uh-huh. But if you watch enough sci-fi films in the 50s, you're going to run into him. <laughs> I also think Barbara Rush is great in this movie. Barbara Rush is really good. I think this was one of her first roles. She got a uh, Golden Globe for this, for, like, you know, up, uh, upcoming like new, star. New, newcomer yeah. or some, some such thing. Yeah. Golden Globes don't mean anything, but still cool. She is that good. She is that good, though. She got somebody's attention. Yeah, she's good. Uh, We also have, not Russell Watson. Johnson. Russell Johnson. Russell Watson sang the Enterprise theme song. Um, (laughs) Russell Johnson, who uh, 
probably most famous for Gilligan's Island. He played the professor, but he's also in a lot of science fiction films from this era. He was also and, in This Island Earth. Which we just mentioned, yeah. Um, so yeah, he plays like one of the townsfolk. He's like the first one to get uh, taken over or replaced by uh, an alien. Um, he's good. Yeah. Everyone's good in this. It's well, it's well uh, produced. Yeah, and uh, yeah, the the, uh, the aliens are nice and eerie. When yeah. when they get taken over, their voices, people's voices change. They stand stock upright, and yeah. they don't really behave like re- regular human beings. Yeah, but it's not in that body snatchers insidious sort of way. Like yeah, they're all monotone they're, and creepy. Where, where they're like trying to lie to you. It's like, hey, I thought you didn't like meat. Yes, I don't like meat. Why are you eating the house plants? Oh, is that an? Un- I mean, uh, yes, that is an unusual thing, isn't it? Like they're they're not trying to pull one over on you. Yeah, like they're just stocks. They're just they're off, and they yeah. affect the voice they're, a little bit. They're just trying to, to go you know. by unnoticed. They're yeah. not trying to in- they're not trying to infiltrate society. Yeah. They're not trying to take over society. They just need to get around a bit to get the materials they need to fix their spaceship. Yeah. And they need and they're just trying to do that as off the radar as they can. And whenever they interact with somebody, they know their cover is going to get blown. Yeah. Because they're they're deep in, for all they know, enemy territory, mm. and they don't know enough about the society to convincingly infiltrate or even talk mm. convincingly like a human because there's all these subtle, yeah. you know, cadences and intonations, and we know something is wrong because we we know George. <laughs> George doesn't talk like that. That's weird that George is talking like that. That kind of thing. Mm. Ultimately, uh, I feel like it came from outer space. It really mm. does stand out amongst very similar material. And there's like, mm. there's again, there's Invasion of the Body Snatchers, Invaders from Mars, and It Came From Outer Space. It really do seem like the three 1950s sci-fi templates of this, of the yeah. aliens coming down to Earth, taking over a small town. And they all have different perspectives. Uh, uh, body Snatchers, right, it's a Cold War allegory or uh, uh, fears of communism and other forms of American paranoia. Yeah, it's all about uh, like an old, uh, an older man, you know, mm. someone who's middle aged, and he's just seeing the world taken over, and nobody believes him. Everyone thinks he's a kook. Invaders of Mars is about a small child, and no one believes him because he's a small child, and mm. it feels like a nightmare. Yeah, because when you're a child, you already feel powerless because, in many respects, you are. Society isn't built for you. Mm. So when he tells everybody, "No, my parents have been taken over by aliens," they're like, "They're their sport," and it's annoying and condescending as fuck. By the way, the ending of that movie is legendary. Um, <laughs> don't ruin it. Just yeah. see it. It's that good. Uh, and then this one is, I, I think the reason why it kind of feels like it lands in the middle of those mm. is because those are two nightmare scenarios. This is a thoughtful scenario mm. in which all of the violence, all of the horror, all the all of that is considered quite a tragedy. Yeah. And this really should have been very simple. Mm. And you, that's where I feel like the Ray Bradbury influence obviously comes in. Apparently Ray Bradbury wrote two treatments for this. One where the aliens were villainous and one where the aliens were this, neutral. Mm. And um, the studio went for the neutral take and that's why Ray Bradbury was like, good. That was, <laughs> that was a test. You passed. <laughs> um, but I like this one a lot. And, and regarding how it connects to the Rocky Horror Picture Show, yeah, I was, I was just going to attempt to do this. <laughs> and I, and I, here's what I was thinking about. I, yeah. I don't think it's that direct. Obviously, aliens have come to Earth and they're impersonating us, and that's in Rocky Horror Picture mm. Show. But when you think about Rocky Horror as a story about outsiders, yeah, you know, well, it's, it's like, that's that's the thing. Like, there's a reason why Frankenfurter and Riff Raff and all of these uh, uh, Transylvanians, uh, Transylvanians, yeah. why they're not living in Denton, USA. Mm. They're living here. Denton would not accept them. And whatever yeah. like laser weapons they have or whatever like that, they would probably 
Dentonites would be the villains mm. if Frankenfurter ever just showed up and said, Hello, I have moved into your town. <laughs> and you realize all of a sudden that, you know, on some level that although they are so confident and powerful, they are outsiders still. Mm-hmm. And they only occupy this one small part of this community. Mm-hmm. And some of them are just trying to get home. Yeah. And it maybe it actually made me think about those characters because we've been talking a lot about how Frankenfurter, even though their confidence is so infectious and their sexuality uh. is so empowering that even though they're a villain, you kind of admire them, but you can't deny that they're a villain. Thinking about it in context with it came from outer space actually made me think of all of those characters way more sympathetically because mm. maybe we just don't understand them. Uh, you know? I would, the, the take with the Rocky Horror Picture Show was imagine if instead it instead of being Brad and Janet, these mm-hmm. sort of innocents who are uh, un- unfamiliar with all the sexuality that they're bringing in, imagine you had a scientist character, uh-huh. not not a Doctor Scott, like like Kinsey, yeah, imagine like, if like Kinsey if Alfred up. Kinsey showed up and he's like, mm, yes, let me document all of these weird sexual thing, and yeah. eventually he's like, this is a very interesting way to live, and then, uh, but word is leaked out to. Some anti-sex military force. Yeah, and they're going to roll up tanks. Turns out Ralph Hapshad was actually involved, like the 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 sheriff in town, and he's going to like bring everyone in to kill. Who's the seduction of the innocent guy? Uh, The the guy who who, Doctor is it Verner or something? Hold on, (laughs) seduction of the innocent. Yeah, the the book Seduction of the Innocent is this rather notorious tome, uh, which was. Coming Frederick down, Wortham. Frederick Wortham, that asshole. Yeah, just uh, he, just uh, sounds like a villain in a Dickens book. Yeah. Doctor Wortham. I uh, wrote mm. this book that he was concerned that uh, popular media at the time, and at the time this was like the, the early fifties, yeah. and specifically was, comics, was yeah, specifically comics, but media in general was selling bad values to kids. Yeah, and this was a time of you know tales from the crypt, ultra violent comics. So. Uh, a lot of them but uh, yeah. also, there was also superhero stuff and, and Superman, super, yeah, he, Woman, but he, he was also writing things like oh no kids can't see Batman and Robin because clearly they're gay and that'll make them gay so censor those comics and yeah. it, it was all just this extreme right wing censorship campaign it led to an uproar literally mm. comics were burned in the streets mm. and it led to uh, the creation mm. of the Comics Code Authority which was a system of self-censorship mm. That comics dealt with for decades, much like Hollywood had the production yeah. code, and it's kind of it's gone. drifted away. By no, it's now. gone now. Oh, it's was, gone it was, now. It was okay. always voluntary. In mm-hmm. the '90s, you started seeing it was still mainstream comics. They started putting that there was a little seal on the cover of comics, and it was getting stamp. smaller and smaller and yeah. smaller. And eventually, just they they stopped bothering. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, there was an understanding that if it was for mature readers, it would say for mature yeah. readers. Yeah. Otherwise, it was considered basically for everyone. Yeah, but uh, yes, yeah, seduction of the imagine that guy was like yeah. the bad guy in the new in a Rocky Horror Picture show. Yeah. Yeah. He's gonna come in. And he's gonna shut down the castle and turn down all these orgies. Yeah, it's it's a different yeah. take on yeah. the basic premise. Yeah, the, uh, I think Rocky Horror is more complicated than that, but yeah. look, makes you think. Look, look up the Wortham trials at some point because oh, because William Gaines, the the, yeah. the the publisher of of Tales from the Crypt and Mad Magazine, yeah. was in in courts like saying the most frustrating things. It's like they'd hold up Tales from the Crypt. Is this an appropriate cover? It's a horror comic. It's supposed to scare you. It's totally appropriate. No. <laughs> Well, do you think children should be reading this? It's not for children. Ah! <laughs> a five-year-old gets a hell of this. That's an irresponsible parent. No! <laughs> but should a kid read this? Yeah, if they're f- 15 or so, it's again, for them. The majority of the superheroes that we're talking about today that are like taking over popular culture, uh-huh. they were created in the wake of Seduction of the Innocent. Because the Comics Code Authority all of a sudden meant that a lot of the comics that people mm-hmm. were making... Couldn't be made anymore. 
the horror, the sci-fi, they all had to like kind of go away. And now they had to work within, basically they had to make stories for children for the most part. Yeah. And so Stan Lee, who was getting really frustrated with everything he was writing for Marvel, was like, okay, I want to make mm-hmm. superheroes that are kind of interesting to me. And he actually said that like when he did like the Fantastic Four or whatever, I think it was the Fantastic Four was the one he did. Because uh-huh. I'm going to take a superhero comic and they're going to be nerds. And everyone's going to know who they are. They're not going to wear masks and they're going to complain and... One of them is going to be a cigar chomping Brooklynite instead of like a, a trendy young cool kid. And he was just like, and if I get fired, he was basically trying to get fired. If I get yeah. fired, so be it. And it was so different. It sold like hotcakes. Yeah. And so they started doing interest. Basically, because there was nothing else they could do, there were no other genres that were safe for them because they could only speak in allegory. Superhero comics had to pick up more slack mm. and get more interesting. That's kind of why we're here. And I often wonder if this asshole... <laughs> hadn't written this uh, this large long since completely discredited work yeah uh if comics in popular culture would have been completely different yeah for sure and they probably would have at least now mm. you know like now that comics have infiltrated everything like there was a time like 25 years ago where they hadn't they had their mm. corner and that was that and yeah it would have been a very different world um but we digress a little bit. But regardless, I think that's ultimately what we're talking about here. Is this is a movie about how we treat outsiders of any kind, mm. and it's obviously it's a metaphor. But you can apply this metaphor to anything, and that's why I think it works on that universal horror level. Because regardless of whether they do monstrous things, mm-hmm. the Frankenstein monster, Dracula, the mummy, they're sympathetic. Yeah, it's hard to understand necessarily why they kill. But we understand their motives for doing it. There's no place for them in this world. And they're trying to find love, companionship, something. Just something to latch on to. Just empathy. That's all yeah. they're really looking for. Yeah, and the, and the fact that they can't get yeah. it is what leads them to monstrous things. Because they have no other options most yeah. of the time. I mean, Dracula less so because he has to kill to live. But the, mostly. The, uh, the aliens in this are a little bit more technically minded. Mm-hmm. They actually know where they stand yeah. uh, in terms of how humanity is going to treat them. <laughs> yeah, they have no expectations and, uh, otherwise. Yeah, they're not and, trying and to reach out to us. They're cynical and rightly so about humanity mm-hmm. because they know humanity is going to hurt them. So it's, it's not about them looking for empathy, but... Mm-hmm. But when they encounter it, they're not sure what to do with it. Yeah. And uh, they actually, uh, he, and the empathetic character is the one who ends up orchestrating peace and their escape and the fact that everybody lives. It doesn't yeah. turn into a bloodbath. This would be a great double feature with Contact. Yeah, it's kind of the exact right. opposite. Like all the aliens are like, hey, it's worth reaching out to them. And here the aliens are like, it's not yet. No, no, <laughs> there's no, a reason we don't do this. We're not ready. Yeah. Even, even mm. like the whole like ending a contact where it's just like, well, we can't show you what we really look like. Mm. It actually makes more sense here. Because if they'd actually just say, because we're like weird squid leviathans and you just, your brain couldn't handle it. Mm. If they'd actually just said that, I would have been like, thank you. <laughs> we're weird. <laughs> Is it that way? It kind of feels like a cheat when why? we're just your dad. Like, why, why do you look like my dad? Look, I'm a, I'm, I'm an 800 foot squid leviathan. You know, yeah. you don't know how to talk to something like It'd that. It'd be great if there was that, like that scene in Beetlejuice where he's yeah. just like, what do you, can I be scary? What do you think of this? And just cuts the behind him and they're like, beetle legs. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Whatever those things out of his are. Face yeah. And they all look in terror. Like if there'd been like one shot in contact, we're like, are you my dad? It's like, no, I just look like your dad. And the reason I look like your dad is because normally I look like this. And just <laughs> Cody Foster's face going, ah! And I'm just like, you see why I'm your dad? Yeah. And she's like, uh-huh. <laughs> she's got you need blood, a hug, sweetheart? blood yeah. coming out of her eye. <laughs> Like, hang on, hang on, I need a minute. Yeah. 
Um, but no, I really dug this one. I hadn't seen this, and I really dug it, and it's way right. more thoughtful than I thought it would be. And once I saw that Jack Arnold directed it, I'm like, oh, I might be in good hands. And it turns yeah. out, yeah, he's yeah. a really good director. Yeah, I, I got to see this uh, back in college. I saw it as a double feature with um, Black Lagoon. Oh, and um, that's cool. Yeah, and both of them in, in that Anaglyph 3D, so that was really Ooh, great. That's awesome. I've, I've never seen a Black and White film in 3D. Oh, yeah? I don't think so. No, I've never hmm. seen a Black and White film in 3D. You've seen an anaglyph though, the the, oh, red, yeah. the red and blue. I've, okay. I've seen 3D in, in various yeah, forms. I just have never had an opportunity to see one of the early black and white movies that were yeah, released in 3D. Some some repertory theaters around town, including the one I used to work for, the New Art, uh, would very occasionally have 3D festivals, mm. and it's occasional because they need to replace the screen. Mm. Uh, there's a reason we called it the silver screen. It used to be silver. It used to be more reflective. Yeah, and uh, that anaglyph red and blue 3D uh, doesn't pop as well. On a white screen, so oh. they replaced it with a silver screen. So that's why Spy Kids 3D sucked. Well, that's why. That's why. That's the, th- the only reason. That's why the 3D might have sucked. <laughs> I find that movie kind of charming, actually. <laughs> it's not great. It's, it's it's not the best of the series, but it's kind of no. It, it was yeah. Ricardo Montalban's last movie. Was it really? Yeah, that's too bad. I mean, and, it's just too bad that he's gone. He's it, fine in the movie. It's, it, yeah, it's, I like the. I like how um, Rodriguez treated him. Uh, yeah, and it's like as as royalty as he should be, you cause, know, because he's like it's cool Ricardo that we got Ricardo Ricardo Montalban. Montalban. Yeah, and, and yeah, and in the movie he's uh, he was very old at the time, and he was in yeah. a wheelchair, so the character's also in a wheelchair. Uh, but f- flies. <laughs> well, it it, it uh, his mind is projected into a video game, so they like CGI his head onto like a robot body oh, and stuff, like chasing that, yeah. a butterfly because he can finally <laughs> do that again. No, that was cute. Yeah. <laughs> that was cute. Oh, right. And, and Ricardo Montalban was 100% on board. Yeah. like, oh, yes, I like that. Yeah. I got to robot body. <laughs> anyway, that's it for episode zero this week. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We hope you enjoyed uh, our trip through It Came From Outer Space. Uh, next mm. week, we are giving sci-fi a miss. We've done a lot of sci-fi and horror. And uh, although it's called the Rocky Horror Picture Show, that's not all it was about. Mm. And uh, we're actually going to look at uh, an early 19... Uh, uh, well, I should not have that year in front of me. A 1940s Alfred Hitchcock classic. Mm. Uh, it was Alfred Hitchcock's first film in color. And it is a very ambitious film with a lot of themes uh, that Hollywood was... Um... <laughs> with a lot of themes. <laughs> well, yeah. I was... It's there a... was a pause. I was going to finish that sentence. It's about but... things. It's, it's, it's... We live in a society. We're going to talk, talk a lot about uh, uh, queer coding. Yeah. Uh, in the next episode. Because we're going to be talking about Alfred Hitchcock's uh, classic film, Rope. Uh, which is a real stunner. Uh, there was a time when this was actually really unavailable. Like there were like five of Hitchcock's best movies that were just not available, and mm-hmm. then they got finally released in like the eighties, and everyone's like, "Holy shit, Rope yeah. is good." And, um, these, uh, these two young men who are rather clearly lovers, although it's not explicitly stated. Crashing code, uh, they could, yeah. yeah. Uh, as, as an intellectual thrill, just for the intellectual thrill, yeah, yeah, just commit to- a murder. And uh, just to put a cherry on it, hide the body in their apartment and have a party immediately thereafter. Yeah. And while the body's still in, in the apartment. And you're constantly waiting to see if they're going to get found out, mm. if someone's gonna just going to look in that box or mm. whatever. It's incredible. It's thrilling. Uh, and, um, well, it's going to be uh, it's gonna be a real interesting conversation. Uh, it's one of my favorite Hitchcock films, and that's saying something. So uh, that'll be next week on Episode Zero. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, of course, uh, you can, if you want to write in, talk about anything we discussed on this episode or uh, anything at all, really, our uh, email podcast is We've Got Mail. You can email us letters at criticallyacclaimed.net, and we might read your email in an upcoming episode. Mm. Uh, we're also on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I'm at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. We have a Patreon, patreon.com slash critically network. Uh, and we are especially grateful to all of our Patreon listeners. 
Um, all of our subscribers are the reason why this show and all of our other shows exist. Mm. And without them, they wouldn't. It's just that simple. So uh, to everyone who can afford to subscribe now or in the future, even in the past, we know times are hard and not everyone can do so consistently. We're incredibly grateful to you. Mm. Uh, if you do want to sign up, if you haven't already, you can vote for future episodes of our podcast. You get a ton of exclusive podcasts, podcasts about Batman, Star Trek, the Academy Awards, Disney. You get commentary tracks. It's a lot. Mm. Um, and uh, of course we also have a soap business <laughs> or rather, or rather my wife and partner, M. Lopez da Silva has a soap business and I, and I help out. Uh, it's called salt cat soap and it is currently on Etsy. Uh, these are handcrafted individually, uh, designed 99% of them will be designed by Michelle, but mm. uh, I will design a few over the course of the year to tie into, you know, geeky things or the schmodown once in a while, but. Mostly they're hurt. They're amazing. Uh, Etsy.com. And if you search for mm. Salt Cat Soap, uh, you'll notice that Luca is uh, a, a wonderful drawing of Luca is the logo. Mm. Um, so that's available too. And uh, thank you everybody who's already purchased uh, some soap. We hope you enjoy it. We've already heard back from some people who do. And am I forgetting anything? No, I think that's it. Cool. All right. Well, until then, I see you shiver with Antis. Eh. Thank you.